Support for New Retina Radio comes from Coheres Biosciences, manufacturer of Simerly, Ranibizumab EQRN. Discover its distinct value at Simerly.com. That's C-I-M-E-R-L-I.com. My name is John Kitchens, and I am in practice at Retina Associates of Kentucky in Lexington, Kentucky. Welcome to this episode of the State of Biosimilars. I've got two great guests with me today. First and foremost, Dr. Carl O. from Tennessee Retina in Nashville, Tennessee. Hello, Carl. Hi, John. Happy to be here with you. Great to have you. And last but not least, we have Faras Rahal, a doctor at the Retina and Vitreous Associates Medical Group and the Jewel Stein Eye Institute in Los Angeles, California. Hello, Faras. Hey, John. Thanks a lot for inviting me to participate. I really appreciate it. Great to have really knowledgeable and entertaining guests on today. Um, we're just going to take a, a couple of minutes here to remind everyone about some top line facts about biosimilars. First of all, currently there are two biosimilars approved by the FDA, both of which reference ranibizumab. Per the American Academy of Ophthalmology, there's Simerly, which is cleared for all indications of ranibizumab, and it comes in both the 0.3 and 0.5 milligram formulations. Second, there's Biovis, which has approval for all indications of ranibizumab 0.5 milligrams. And per the FDA, a biosimilar is a biologic that is highly similar to and has no clinically meaningful differences in terms of safety, purity, and potency, uh, really safety and effectiveness from an existing FDA-approved biologic called a reference product. Now, Carl, we just kind of gave the FDA definition of what a biosimilar is, but in plain English, what is a biosimilar? Well, I think the FDA actually said it pretty plainly, but what's important for listeners to understand is what a biologic is. So we're saying a biosimilar is essentially as safe and as pure and as effective as the reference biologic. But biologics are sort of special drugs. They are drugs that are produced using a living system, like a cell from a plant or an animal um, and so that's different than some other drugs that are just batches of chemicals mixed together. So when a biosimilar is made, it's going to be using a process uh, that is uh, not necessarily exactly like the process used uh, by the reference company for the re or the original company for the reference drug, but it is one that still should result in a biologic that is uh, for practical intents and purposes you know, uh, identical or impossible to differentiate from the original biologic. So for us, why do we even have biosimilars? I mean, ranibizumab has been around uh, as the brand name Lucentis for over a decade. Um, we've been using it. What's the real point behind a biosimilar? It's a great question. And I, I, think, I think the basic answer comes down to patient accessibility and drug availability. And, and there are many levels to that. But we have a lot of experience as physicians with the concept, not so much in ophthalmology with biosimilars themselves, but if you think of small molecules and generics, we have a lot of experience with what that brought to the table for our glaucoma patients and our patients receiving topical antibiotics and topical steroids. There ends up becoming 
many more options for patients at different financial levels and different types of uh, insurance coverages. I think that's the first and great thing is this more accessible, excellent drugs and choices for patients and doctors to prescribe, but also on a more global kind of national aggregate level, these drugs that come out as generics for small molecules or biosimilars for larger biological molecules save the country money uh, as a whole. Uh, they save Medicare money, they can save insurance companies money, and that really becomes saving patients money in the entire system. So I think all in all, this movement towards generics and biosimilars, when patents run out and so forth, saves money to patients on the bottom line and gives them more accessibility. And we've seen this in biosimilars in other non-ophthalmic spaces like Hemonc. And I think that has borne out as pretty good savings for the different payers. Now, for us, when we look at the clinical studies that lead to the approval of a biosimilar, they seem so short with primary outcomes at a month or two months and small sample size. Can you kind of go over really the approval process for a biosimilar and you know, how we can feel kind of comfortable that they are fairly equivalent to the reference product? Yeah, again, it's a great point. And it, inherent in this part of it is why they can be uh, somewhat more cost-effective, if not tremendously more cost-effective, is that the clinical trials part of bringing a biosimilar to market uh, is much shorter. There's a smaller, shorter uh, amount of clinical trial data that's generated the the bulk of the work there 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 are late stage clinical trials done indeed so they're not without clinical trials but the reference product usually have years of uh, sub, uh subsequent one after the other clinical trials phase one two three and so on these uh the bulk of the work is in preclinical science uh, bench tops uh, if you will science showing. Uh, uh, in, in a very formal fashion outside of my skill set, why we should believe these two products are identical in so many ways, uh, their structure, their the way that they behave in the lab, et cetera, that becomes more part of this. And that's relatively less expensive and shorter time frame to get those data then the subsequent and final piece of the clinical trial data becomes not nominal, it's real, but it's shorter. And that's why we can bring them to market uh, much sooner and uh, hopefully in a more cost-effective way. Great answer. Carl, safety, big issue with our drugs that we use. Is the safety data we garner enough to make us feel confident in biosimilars? I think so, uh, John. You know, we have a lot of, I, I should say I do, and I'm sure we all do have a great confidence in the FDA, but we know that the uh, approval process is imperfect because there's no way even in a very robust and long clinical trial to identify everything that could be, uh, you know, that could cause complications from a drug. So biosimilars are different in that, you know, they really shouldn't be new drugs with any uh, uh, complication different from those seen in the reference drug. But as retina specialists, we've had enough experience where truly novel drugs have caused you know, unwanted side effects that were not revealed in the clinical trials that anything that's got the word new in front of it makes us a little bit nervous. And, and that includes a biosimilar. Uh, so there is 
I think, uh, a natural anxiety when things are new. And so one thing that I did with many of my colleagues is to do a, a sort of a real world analysis of outcomes with biosimilars. So in the past, I might have looked at the cases done in my own practice and maybe called up a few friends and gotten their data. Uh, I'm part of a, our practice is part of a consortium that allowed me to uh, gather uh, experience from about 190 retina specialists in 16 practices across the country with our initial um, experience using uh, both of these biosimilars. So just looking at them in the aggregate, this is data that I presented last summer at the ASRS meeting, and we have uh, been building the data set, but I don't really have the final statistics on it now. Uh, what I presented at ASRS were results of about 13,500 uh, roughly injections given to five, more than 5,000 eyes. And in those patients, we saw, you know, no unexpected adverse effects. The uh, efficacy seemed as expected. The visual acuity uh, was what would be expected had we been treating with reference ranibizumab. Uh, there were no cases of inflammation that seemed to be drug-associated, something unusual. There were a few cases of infection, and that would be expected in that number of injections, and that incidence rate was less than one in 4,000, so that's um, typical with what we see with injecting, you know, any drug in the eye. So, so in our initial experience with ranibizumab biosimilar agents revealed no unexpected adverse outcomes. Their clinical efficacy seemed uh, equivalent to the reference ranibizumab. And we are uh, looking at now probably more than three times the number of these injections. I was trying to get a little bit of a summary of this data uh, in advance of this call, but I haven't been able to uh, get something that I can really hang my hat on for sure. But what I've seen to date suggests that the larger numbers uh, also have given us results consistent with those initial 13,500 that these ranibizumab biosimilars do seem to uh, function as promised and do not seem to be associated with any um, adverse outcomes that we didn't see with the reference ranibizumab. Wow, that's very powerful, Call. That's fantastic. Let's transition just a little bit to the economics of biosimilars. For us, uh, why do biosimilars briefly make sense for your practice? Yeah, for us, uh, they they do and did make sense. And in our group, and we're not nearly 190 doctors, but we've done thousands of injections now of biosimilar uh, drugs, the both ranibizumab products, more the coherence version. But we, you know, we have good familiarity. I agree with everything Carl said about the safety in our own personal practice. But to answer your question. Uh, we have a lot of HMO uh, payers in our in our region. Los Angeles is known for that. I think that's true all around the country now. But even without that, payers recognize uh, when you're prescribing a lower cost alternative, like a biosimilar or a generic in the case of, you know, a small molecule, I think they favor that. They make it a fairly easy process to authorize and pay. And just in the most simplistic way, 
that makes our processing of the entire patient month over month and year over year much easier because we're having kind of a goodwill with the payer and they're having goodwill with us and sort of uh, going along with the program without making it too difficult for us. So I think the first and principal reason is it makes it uh, it, it, it makes our payers, you know, happy, so to speak, and they're saving money and getting a high quality product uh, to the patient. So it's win-win. And the second thing would be on the business side for the practice. Uh, the companies have done a good job in positioning these drugs with margins that make it easier for us to see it as a good, uh, good business proposition. And the lower cost lowers the risk in the buy and bill model that we've all come accustomed to now when you don't collect very well the higher price the drug uh the, the more pain that could bring to the practice in a business sense that's fantastic summary guys i really appreciate it we're going to take a quick break when we get back we'll continue our discussion stay tuned Support for New Retina Radio comes from Coherus Biosciences, manufacturer of Simerly, Ranibizumab EQRN. Discover its distinct value at Simerly.com. That's C-I-M-E-R-L-I.com. Welcome back to our discussion about biosimilars, why they exist and how they provide greater options to our patients and providers. I'd like to discuss how our panelists discuss biosimilar technology with their patients. So Frost, let's talk about talking to patients about making that transition to biosimilars. Is this a long conversation? Is it just, hey, this is the same drug you're getting. It's just kind of a version similar to it. What, what do you say to patients to make them feel comfortable and understand the benefits of the biosimilar? It's a great question. Uh, and I'll, I'll start with, for the patients who've been in the practice with me before, and, and I'll get into some of the different types of patients that might be having this discussion with me, but let's say it's a person already being treated in my clinic for months or even years. Uh, we've developed a rapport and a trust. So the first kind of global part of this is there's a great deal of trust in these conversations tend to be pretty short. When I introduce an idea about switching a drug, whether it be switching to a biosimilar or another drug, let's say if I see someone not doing as well and I want to change drugs for that reason, those discussions tend to be pretty short on the revisit patients because of the, the previous rapport. And I usually just say, I'm, this may sound like an oversimplification, but I'm giving you a truthful answer of what happens in the clinic. Um, hey, uh, Mrs. So-and-so, I, I have this other product I'd like to give you. In this case, if it's a biosimilar and they want to know why I'm switching, it relates to sort of, and they say yes, by the way, almost universally right off the bat. But if the explanation were to happen, it depends on from what they're coming. If they're coming from having been receiving Lucentis, it's a fairly easy transition. And I tell them straight out, this is a biosimilar, which in common layman's language is like a generic and this will potentially save them money, but will save their insurance company money and perform equivalently. And there, there's lots of proof to back that up. And I've had no one um, really resist it even one bit in that context. In fact, I'm always amazed how patients, certainly Medicare patients, are pretty responsible about not to waste Medicare's money. I find they, they're on board with the concept pretty quickly if it's a good drug. If I'm switching them 
from another drug that might be a more uh, detailed discussion, and that's been less frequent for me. The new patients are, are also pretty brief. Those are the most common ones for me are the switches from uh, from Lucentis or a new, a new uh, novel therapy. Then I just tell them this is a biosimilar of an established brand that we've used for 17 or 18 years, and that I would like to start with that. And I think it's an excellent product with good safety and clinical data to support it. And I've had no pushback at all. I've had those conversations in a matter of seconds to minutes, typically. You know, I would assume that in LA, you've got a, a pretty tough crowd, you know, as far as, you know, being very sophisticated, asking questions. Carl, what have been patient responses for you in Nashville when you suggest switching to a biosimilar? Well, first, I have to say that our patients can be pretty sophisticated in Nashville, too, John. <laughs> but uh, having having said that, my conversation is very much like uh, Faraz's, and I probably spent more time discussing the switch before I became really familiar with the analysis that I talked about in the first part uh, you know, of our discussion. And so once I beca it became clear to me that these truly are interchangeable forms of ranibizumab that happen to have different uh, brand names and that uh, payer A wants me to use, you know, biosimilar, you know, B, uh, and payer C prefers that I use the other one, and the payment terms are better uh, uh, for the patient and and for the practice often, then it's really a very easy discussion. I'm just recommending a good drug for them and really don't have to get into uh, the brand name of the drug at all now. You know, I felt that was very important when these were new, and I was explained to a, uh, explaining to a patient that I thought these were safe and effective, but I wanted to try it. Are they willing to? Some of the patients early on had a little bit of trepidation, but now because I'm very comfortable uh, with these as being um, true biosimilar, um, you know, uh, substitutes, um, that uh, that uh, my patients are as well. So it's a very easy discussion. Now, Carl, not only do you have sophisticated patients in Tennessee, but it sounds like you have very sophisticated insurers. So you actually have insurers that are telling you, we want you to use this biosimilar versus that one? We are starting to have that happen a little. I think it will happen more as there becomes more pricing difference. You know, So some of the, the discussion we've had about how this will be more cost-effective you know, those are really things I anticipate happening. The pricing difference isn't really there particularly now, but it's just the nature of business that as more products enter a market and they are really the same product with a different brand name, that, uh, you know, the prices are going to go down. And so I think that will uh, really uh, impact uh, the economics of our treatment with anti-VEGF agents in the in just the, the next few years. So I think the insurers are just starting to position themselves that way. As more and more uh, players enter the market, they'll probably start to negotiate directly with insurers and, you know, make uh, with ways to try to make their drug the winning drug. And again, as long as I have access to a good drug for my patient, I'm uh, okay with the insurer and the uh, and the pharmaceutical company you know doing those things that's 
really it's out of our power. It, it, and the, it used to frustrate me some, but you know, there's uh, real limits to what physicians get to control and the way we treat our patients. So at least uh, it seems like the discussion is revolving now around the use of uh, really excellent FDA approved agents. And I'm happy to see that. You know, for us, Carl hits on something very important here. Right now, we just have two biosimilars to ranibizumab, but in the very near future, we might have multiple biosimilars to say a flibercept. Um, do you foresee insurers each having their own specific biosimilar? And we're going to have to stock all of these things and keep track of all of these things and use one for one insurer and one for another insurer. How do you think that's going to work out? Well, I, I'm hoping it doesn't get to the point that we're so individualized between insurance carrier and other insurance carriers. I'm hoping that it it stays that even if they're sort of pressing us to use lower cost alternatives, that they give us some options there, especially as more and more come up. And primarily, that's not from a business standpoint, but from a stocking standpoint, your point is extremely well taken. We're already, you know, running short of space. And, and that actually helped us to decide to really lean more towards one of these than both because of stocking was a kind of a question mark. But that's a great point. But I think the the other part of the question is what, you know, what's coming down? How's this going to play out? I, I think the aflibercept story will be huge. And I think this is just really the tip of the iceberg with ranibizumab biosimilar. And the reason for that is if you look back at the ASRS polls over the last decade, uh, we've all voted in these polls. Uh, many retina doctors, a, a high proportion, 60, 70 plus percent, were prescribing ILEA as, you know, their principal uh, drug or, you know, labeled a flibercept. So I think when that drug becomes available as a biosimilar, the volume of biosimilar use, I think, is going to really skyrocket because now you have both options available, both a flibercept and ranibizumab. And I think we're going to have to really uh, worry a little bit about how to stock all this, but I think that'll work itself out. And I think the the drug companies will, uh, to Carl's point, negotiate directly with insurance payers and try to get their drug positioned as the first so-called step. We're not talking about step therapy here per se, but we have a fair amount of that in Southern California. Off-label Avastin has been part of that equation for many years and remains so. I think the biosimilars will change that somewhat and maybe that will diminish. We'll find out, even though it remains lower cost, I think the drug companies will see biosimilars as an FDA approved ophthalmic uh, lower cost alternative. So I think they're going to want us to use this and want us to use it a lot. And I think we are going to be using it more and more in the coming years. That's a great response for us. And Carl, last question. When we're looking at using different biosimilars, what are some of the things that we can look at either from drug data or from a company perspective to say, hey, this is this is a biosimilar that we should really, you know, get behind, or is it just going to be a matter of what does the insurance company tell us to use? Well, I think, you know, if they're FDA approved, they should be pretty similar. I do think one other advantage of what's happening with the biosimilars is it is bringing uh, some powerhouse pharmaceutical companies, biotech companies into the ophthalmology and retina world that weren't really part of our world before. And so 
I, I think that um, that may, you know, generate other uh, new drug development projects, other uh, research interests in companies that per perhaps didn't really know the retina world so well. So uh, sort of like we've done uh, over the last 15 plus years, I'm hoping that there will just be companies that we tend to want to work with more because they want to work with us. They don't want to just sell us a drug. They want to study the drug. They want to develop a better form of the drug. And um, if, if given the choice, that's the sort of company whose product I'd rather work with. But, you know, the cynical part of me, as um, uh, Farah and I both indicated, you know, worry a bit that some of, some of the drug choice is going to be taken out of our hands as it has been already and dictated to us by, by someone else. Yeah, very good point about some of those new companies coming in that you're right are absolute powerhouses. I think this has been a fantastic and eye-opening discussion. Uh, thank you, Carl O. and Faras Rahal for joining me. This was the first installment of this mini-series. We have one more episode lined up. Be sure to subscribe to the show to get that episodes and others sent directly to your feed. I'm John Kitchens. Thanks for listening.